Did you find many of the treasures in the Colossal Cave, Squidge? I didn't actually get a chance to play any of these. Right. I had to mm-hmm. do like last minute, I, I not last minute research, but I had to do research because I didn't find anywhere I could play them. So it mm-hmm. was I was either watching someone play them or reading up on articles on them. So I've literally got facts, but I've I read articles and I watched certain things on YouTube where the people mm-hmm. explain their experience with it and what have you. And um, with with the Colossal Cave Adventure, the person I was watching, they said they were on a regular occasion when they played it, they were plagued by the pirate nicking all of their treasure constantly. <laughs> and it was going to the pirate, trying to get it back, and then they get that back, and then some sort of evil dwarf would run up and nick all of his treasure. So it, it's like a constant back and forth going everywhere, trying to find out who nicked it, you know, trying to get it and get it back and try and get <laughs> those points. And it just, it was a constant work around. And they said that the biggest problem they had was working out where they'd been. So he showed you like hand sketch drawings of all the maps that he made, like back in the day and like when he revisited it, all the hand sketch maps and stuff. The, the Colossal Cave is not adherent to Euclidean geometry. So <laughs> you can map out like 90% of it. <laughs> and that, that's what kind of what makes it fun is you, no matter how hard you try, there's still stuff that you can't get right. And there's random encounters. There's stuff that might happen or might not, which makes it feel a lot more alive, I think. A lot more annoying, I'd imagine. Yes, that, that too. <laughs> So, a dragon pops up. Oh fuck! Yeah, Crying here we go again. <laughs> just, just kill it with your bare hands. That worked last time. Kill dragon. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that makes Colossal Cave Adventure important in the overarching story of video games and programming in general is it's the first like adventure game where there's this fantasy world that you're entering into and enjoying. Um, well, roughly speaking, in. In the traditional narrative, it's the first one. Yeah. Um, so it's written in 1976. And that is relevant because that's after the ARPANET started. So the precursor to the internet. So Adventure is one of the earlier programs that spreads over the internet. So a lot of people who were at research labs that ended up being online on, at the time, ARPANET was only supposed to be used for research government military if there <laughs> you can find the contracts for it that universities had to sign and if you used it for something else that was a federal crime <laughs> so you, you can just imagine these dudes at research centers and or universities or wherever and they're just like going around arpanet they're like oh gonna gotta talk with some colleagues and ooh, what's this is this a video game <laughs> better just look both ways and download it really quick <laughs> hide it somewhere is anyone watching no damn yeah get it going. here we go i'm in <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me partially of a, a story about the development of doom um mm-hmm. so uh for multiplayer um, for local multiplayer gameplay, um, Doom would use the UDP port number 666. And it has like since become, like if you look up network mappings and stuff like that, it is known as the Doom port. And there are multiple reports from um, around the time, 93, 94, 95, of network system administrators who worked at universities and colleges complaining that the network was saturated with people playing Doom, and so no one could get their work done. I mean, you gotta you gotta imagine if you have enough computer folk in a room, they're gonna they're gonna start doing stuff that you're not supposed to do on computers. Everyone gets bored. Yeah, <laughs> why why not play a round of Doom or go into the cave? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I mean, I remember myself. I was. <laughs> We were sitting in a uh, in in a university lecture, and this you know he's standing at the front doing his creaky dulcet tones of, and then the thing happened, and you do the you know that kind of the the sort of Ferris Bueller the teacher from Ferris Bueller going Ferris Bueller Ferris Bueller that kind of thing, but for a full forty five minute lecture, 
And I remember at some point, 20 minutes in, he's got his back turned to it and he's writing something on the wall. And these Ethernet cables just get thrown around the room because there's someone at the front who has a switch and they're plugging everyone in really quickly so they can Here all play go. a game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Wasn't it they were playing Unreal Tournament and someone had the sound on and out of nowhere just said, <laughs> yeah. my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. <laughs> I have a, uh, when I was in middle school, our, we had an IT person at our school who wasn't very good at their job, but we had a Windows file share set up. They had no password on it because that's, ooh, that's hard. That's hard work to do. And so I figured out that you could put files on it and then all the computers could run it. So me and some of my friends put MAME on it put some arcade game ROMs and just whenever we had computer lab, it's like, all right, can play Pac-Man now guys <laughs> can just, instead of typing, let's just load up MAME. <laughs> I think it's must've stayed around for like two years before anyone figured out like, wait a second, what's this <laughs> folder doing here? That that's not right. So I'll, I'll beep this out for the story I've got. Right. I, I was doing a, uh, a training thing. It was, it was to do with, um, being a um, IT technician, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the the lab that we did stuff on and we learnt on, all the PCs were in rows, and the guy at the front or the person at the front was one that was teaching us. And I figured out how to access something that they networks on all the PCs for like off days, and it was Counter Strike. And I figured out just by happenstance what the password was to access those files. Very so good. me being me, I spread it around to everyone. Mm-hmm. And it was meant to be work on your coursework, work on this, work on that. And I knew some of it was going to happen because I was working on my coursework. I looked up and there was two PCs in front of me and there was two guys playing Counter-Strike, right? On opposite sides. It was just them two. And it was getting really heated. And I thought, they're, they're going to burst this bubble. I can't believe this. And again, I'll beat this. But one of them just stood up, like threw the headphones down and went, BAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAAA
But uh, but that's the thing, right? These these contracts came with real, real legal. Um, um, yeah, um, actual ramifications. Yeah, ramifications. Sorry, yeah, that's the word I was thinking. Oh, yeah, you get real legal ramifications for using what is essentially the military network mm-hmm. for your own silliness. <laughs> it's fantastic. Only if you get caught. Exactly. <laughs> it's not a crime if you don't get caught. I don't think that's how it works, but okay. <laughs> it is in my logic. I'm an evil genius, remember? As long as you don't get caught, you're all right. That's okay, then. <laughs> so with that being said, then, and going exclusively on the name of the game, now this one, um, I know that with uh, Colossal Cave Adventure and with Rogue and with Space War, all three of them so far, you can actually play them online in the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, the the links that I have, uh, thanks to Sean, um, for S- Space War runs in an emulator in the browser. A Colossal Cave runs in DOSBox in the browser. And so does Rogue, right? So you can click the button and you're... Your operating system is running a browser, running in uh, a fake operating system, which is the JavaScript runtime engine, which is running a DOS box, which is pretending to be a DOS machine, an emulator running the game again, right? But but let's 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 talk about so yeah, all of those games are accessible on on online, right? But let's talk about Rogue. I, I love the fact that you didn't send me any of them links. You just gave me the names of them. You didn't. Oh, I'm no. the worst. <laughs> no, that's that's why I was rushing to try and find anything footage-wise or anything. That's so. the first level of the game, right? Well, what about what about then, Scridge? <laughs> How um, about if you open it up now and try and play Rogue in your browser, and we do it live on the on the yeah? Well, well, I okay, mean, either link. Give me a link, and I'll try it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the first roguelike game, and I'm no good at them. So, so here we go. So it's going to go into your browser. What you got to do? Click the link. Where's my mouse? Right, it will take you to the Internet Archive, and there's a gigantic green power button. You 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 click click the big button. Yep. Okay. So I I can't see you guys because it's like that's fine. No, that's fine. Yeah, we're not important. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You have to experience history. Experience it. Rogue name. Squidge, because of course. Oh, I, I have no idea what the controls are. <laughs> what, what? That's that's part of the experience, right? Oh god, is it number key? Numpad or arrows? Wait, it, what? What the? <laughs> I seriously, I I can't move. What, what's going on? <laughs> that seems accurate. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it does, but. I, it's, hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is there something I skipped? Let's reload the page. Give me a second. Podcasting first here. Give me a second. Is there anything that I missed? I might have just ran straight into it. Okay. Name. Oh, I can move now. That's all right. Okay. It's the color version. The thing I saw was... Um, oh, I got a portion. The, the one yeah. I saw, it was all black and white. Yeah, the earlier versions... So Rogue was originally written, it kind of gets fuzzy, the actual dates. It was probably written in the very end of the 1970s and started getting out into the world in the 1980s. Um, And it was developed at UC Santa Cruz for Unix, actually. (laughs) Oh, space. Right. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) It came up before. I didn't realize space bar was actually accept stuff. So it said mm -hmm. something. You got hurt. And then I was, I was, I was, yeah. Space again, yeah. I was a bit... Okay. <laughs> so it was originally developed for Unix as... It was D&D nerds that wanted to play D&D but didn't have enough friends to play D&D all the time. <laughs> so one of them was like, well, what if we do it but in the computer? <laughs> and so they started developing it and one of the like first big thing, the hallmark that makes Rogue cool... Well, there's a lot of things that make it cool, but the the big important part is that everything's procedurally generated. So every time you load up Rogue, you get a different dungeon, you get different names for potions. The monsters say the same and you stay the same, but different items are named differently, different scrolls, just everything's random. So it's always a new adventure and you just crawl around a dungeon you go lower and lower in the dungeon, defeating monsters, earning experience, getting gold, leveling up. And then eventually you get to the bottom and you're trying to beat 
a larger boss monster and recover a magic orb and bring it back up to the top. Why do I have to kill emus? (laughs) (laughs) Have you not had to do that before? They're dangerous. I I know they're dangerous, but I've I've never had to go against one in in a game. So, from what I can gather, the reason that it has fantastically wacky stuff like that is because uh, Michael Toy, the original developer of Rogue, was a big fan of Colossal Cave. So there's a certain type of humor that carried over from that. That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I'm fighting Dude. Kestrels? What the <laughs> I right, do I'll, like I'll stop the, that now. <laughs> so, so you can tell... You can tell that it was a unique game because it has uh, HJKL as the movement um, mm-hmm. characters, which are the VI or Vim um, character movement characters. So, yeah, J, J and K will be up and down, and H and L, I think, uh, will be left and right. Mm-hmm. That's Most how you move the modern ones around. map to some kind of arrow keys, which is a little better. Um, but so the reason for the the wacky key bindings is this was not designed for a teletype, but for a, it, what they called when it was new, a glass teletype, which (laughs) is just a CRT terminal. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no mouse, obviously. So all of the inputs are, are all the controls are bound to almost every key on the keyboard. So there's stuff like Q for quaff for drinking a potion um oh capital w for where and lowercase w for wield it's it's kind of intensive you you can kind of figure it out a bit on the fly but it's best to have like a man page up <laughs> i tell you something i'm gonna look for a glass teletype on ebay later on see what happens because <laughs> a what crt glass teletype that's what i'm gonna call them from now on that's yeah. exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> but I am um, just going on the back of that. I played games similar to that in the past. Yeah. Um, sort of like whatever you've got to hand on the PC, so symbols and everything on the keyboard. Mm-hmm. I played like a Pitfall clone, and I played what else? I played. It was Pitfall and something else. So games like that, I'm familiar with because I played the Pitfall one a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. But it's it's I'm I'm guessing that when that was made it was incredibly small, so it it sort of when it was put up to the, the precast to the internet, that must have spread like wildfire. <laughs> the so that was one of the vectors of spread for I shouldn't use that word <laughs> for rogue. The so the main reason that it used ASCII characters is because the teletypes were all text mode, so you can only have text. But a big part of the spread was the software developer, after he developed it at UC Santa Cruz, he dropped out and went to UC Berkeley to work as a programmer. And what's relevant about Berkeley in the very early 80s, late 70s, is they were developing this program called BSD, which is a variety of Unix. So it's an operating system that ran on mainframes. And the I think it was the third or fourth release of BSD came bundled with Rogue. So it turned into this pack-in game for very, very nerdy computer users in the 80s. <laughs> and then from there, it spread and started getting ports and adaptations. So again, it was it was a launch title for Unix then? Yeah. <laughs> That's the weird thing is all these like, oh, we have a mainframe but it comes with Space Wars. <laughs> or we we have this very serious Unix distribution. Oh, but what's this? It has a game folder. <laughs> <laughs> but I know Rogue, it's sort of, it's it's got that, like, randomly generated. You can level up. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, it's, to my knowledge, it's the first game of its type that introduces permadeath. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it, it sort of saves between levels. So you get up to this stage and it might save it there, but you know, if you don't load that back up, you start from scratch from mm-hmm. the beginning point and it's never the same. So you could have, you could have those emus and, and wild kestrels going for your throat while a snake's chasing you. 
What, yeah. what, what? It's it's an engaging formula. Yeah. It's a weird one. <laughs> it is weird. Well, I, I mean, can just imagine he... someone in a mainframe yelling, damn, I've just been killed by a Kestrel again. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm programming, guys. Honest. <laughs> it's 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 a new programming thing. Is dot Kestrel? Do you want yeah, to be don't careful with it? it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what's cool about Rogue is it's on uh, all of these games is they early on spread between mainly academics and like government workers that had access to computers and not enough people knew about computers that they could get really big, but they could just kind of fly under the radar and spread pretty wide. And then once like the PC starts coming out about a year later, um, Rogue becomes a big thing on DOS. And there's like you were just playing on the emulator squidge. Mm. That's the DOS version of Rogue. But there okay. were also ports to a bunch of other systems and adaptations. So you get things like Hack, NetHack, Slashem, and infinite permutations of the formula. But even modern games like Risk of Rain or something are or what else, faster than light, a bunch that are still mm. the same formula, just different settings, different graphics. Again, with that space. Yeah, space. Space is important. Faster than light, <laughs> it's a space game. <laughs> yeah, it's a game in space. A launch title on... <laughs> space. That's it. Stick a sticker on the side, launch title with... <laughs> so all you got to do is make a game about space and, and bundle it in with some hardware so that mm-hmm. it is... It just, it's in the box, right? Free games. Yeah. (laughs) So we also, one of the other things that we were, that we were going to talk about is, um, is Plato. Which is just, is genius. Plato is amazing. So I don't know, Jay, if you ran across the... So one of the things that makes Plato kind of frustrating to learn about is there's not a whole lot of sourcing about it. But there is one book called The Friendly Orange Glow by Brian Deere that's... It's I really like the book. It's pretty big. It's like 600 pages or something, if I remember. Um but the author compiled it over 30 some years from interviews and any source code, any information he could find. And it's kind of the, it's the only book written on Plato. And it's also kind of the definitive one that goes through everything about the system. But that that's the, the best entry point before you get into the wild West territory of trying to figure out about Plato. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is, it's, it's, oh my goodness. So, uh, Plato is, uh, it's like the programmed logic for automated teaching operations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like this idea of uh, how do we, how do we teach people to use these computers and, give and how them do we teach people in the future? Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's it, amazing. It is amazing. Um, from from the pictures I've seen, I know it's got the orange glow, but sort of mm-hmm. the the menus and like the movement and the the models and stuff. I looked at that and I thought, oh, so that's what they made Tron on then, the movie <laughs> Tron, because it kind of looks like it. The movement, it's the Whoa. space things. It. I just thought that's Tron, but in orange. Will, so what's yeah. Plato starts in 1960, right? So really old technology. The the whole big goal of it was computers, well, they're expensive. We own one computer, but we have way more students than that. So we need to find a way to share a computer between multiple students and program it roughly to teach them something. And the idea is you'd have this classroom of the future where you could go in, there'd be hundreds of terminals connected to one computer somewhere. And the first iteration has like, two terminals and then they start upping and upping until in 1970 the biggest one that came out was Plato 4 which could service something like a few thousand different terminals and it so 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 get this the project is so ambitious that they develop time sharing which is 
this it's like the antiquated way of saying a multi-user system which they're like by a few months the first to develop that on a mainframe they get multitasking down so a computer that can run more than one program at once without them clashing and then by the time Plato 4 comes around <laughs> this is the most wild part to me they found designs for an an early rendition of a plasma display that didn't work and using using some physicists that they just had around and some engineers they developed the first goddamn plasma screen display just so that they can have these terminals <laughs> Wow. And and the reason they did it was because if they want to have a few thousand students using one computer, they couldn't use that much memory. So plasma screens have this hysteresis effect where if you turn a bit on, it'll stay on. And then if you turn it off, it stays off. So that way they don't have to have a frame buffer. They just have this future technology that they develop just for these educational terminals. <laughs> That's... Just that's just amazing that it's all of wild. this. It really is all this innovation that we we take for granted now. When someone goes, "Oh, we've got we built this brand new thing," and it's like it's not really new, is and it? You just made it um, viable commercially. Exactly. <laughs> the The plasma screens were also touch screens. These ter- this whole system could do so so much that. It just doesn't show up in the traditional narrative of computer history, but it's like right there. It doesn't fit in. It can do way more than it should be able to do in the early 70s. But so what made it all tick that made video games really possible on it was you have a display, which it it can do graphics. It is a bitmap display, but it mainly did text. But you could switch out the text set so you could do like fake graphics on it. Um, but then remember that they're all sharing one big computer. So these are all networked. So you have the, as they got bigger and bigger, they needed bigger computers. So by the middle, middle of the seventies about they're using a CDC supercomputer to run as their like central thing, which is very overkill, but you have a supercomputer with thousands of terminals networked to it. And once they're connected up, it's easy to get the terminals to talk to each other. So people started writing networked video games for it because you have a bunch of students that are learning a program that now have access to a networked supercomputer. So they're like, oh, yeah, I can I can just write up a program on here. I can do something fun. Yeah. So we're talking MMOs in the 70s. Yeah. Which is it's insane. And one of the. Well, the first MMOs is actually a space game, which... You surprise, know, surprise. Surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Empire. And so it, massive here is like 32 people, I think. But you basically fly around. You can be a, a Klingon, a Romulan, a human, or an Andorian, I think. Or might have been an Andromedian or something. But you can play as one of four teams. You fly around with a spaceship and you try to you have like ship to ship combat and you can bombard planets, land troops and try to take over and form a galactic empire. And it's all done using plasma displays in the early 1970s on a network. (laughs) I'll be completely honest. I was hoping you were going to say the fourth race in that game was going to be Potato. I don't know why. <laughs> that Human, would, Romulan, Klingon, and Potato. That would kind of fit with the, the humor of all this stuff. <laughs> wow. Just a legion of Mr. Potato heads running yeah, towards here me. Here they come. <laughs> Again, though, like from, a, from an innovation point of view, I guess if you don't know where the limits are, you invent the limits. Mm-hmm. And like, like we were saying earlier on, right, you start with no code. I don't know how to write a, a multiplayer online game, regardless of whether it's one player, two player, 20 players, 32 players, right? And we're talking at a time when, um, so we're talking the 70s, right? Before mm-hmm. the majority of the the higher level 
languages are invented. You know, C isn't around at that point. So you're likely doing it in assembly code or machine code, right? Which is analogous to writing a book that is going to be in German, but you're writing it in Latin. Right? <laughs> Upside down. Yes. <laughs> in Pretty space. Much. Obviously in space, yeah. Obviously in space. <laughs> but yeah, so that just kind of blows my mind that, that A, there's a, there is a situation where there's a CDC computer in the middle of it, a supercomputer sitting in the middle, handling all of it. B, there's a plasma display. <laughs> Touchscreen plasma display. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's better. And, and C, they're using all of this amazing technology that even now a touchscreen plasma display would be pretty whiz bang, right? Right now, if somebody said to me, hey, Jamie, here's a touchscreen plasma display for your house. I'd be like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Right. Let's run space walls on it. Yeah. <laughs> does, it, does it have a packing and is the packing about space? <laughs> That's it. Does it have rogue? <laughs> does it come with adventure? <laughs> Those are going to be my questions from now on. Whenever I go to buy a new games console, it's going to be, does it have rogue, colossal cave adventures and space walls? It can run Halo. No, no, no. If you don't have colossal no, walls, no, I'm not I, doing I, it. I not colossal cave. Need nope. old school. <laughs> is the game at least about space? Well, not really. Not doing it. Not good enough. Nope. Mm. I'll go to another but store yeah. that'll sell me a space game with this. How dare you? So <laughs> something else that's wild about Play-Doh is since these were educational terminals and supposed to be used not for video games, they were mainly in undergrad classes and high schools. So a lot of the programmers were like 18, 19-year-olds that are just learning about computers and they're like, well, I guess we can do something fun with this. That's it. Yeah, if you don't, like I said, if you don't know what the limits are and yeah, you don't exactly. know what the system can do, you find out what the system can do by poking at it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it. Just like innovation comes from that curiosity. How do I do this? How do I make it do that? And yeah, it just, it blows me away just to think about that. And then like, so we talked. To, you mentioned their uh, empire being essentially what could probably be the first multiplayer online game. What, depending on your your um, definition of massive, it could be a massive multiplayer online game. Thirty two people is actually a pretty big crowd, um, especially on network then, PCs as well. Network terminals, right? you know. That's it. And then you go. Well, let's just stick around in 1973 and talk about Maze War the first 3D first-person shooter in 1973 on a touchscreen plasma screen. With <laughs> ASCII characters. All just a text set of graphics. <laughs> okay, I didn't see that in the document last week. That's new to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah let me get you a link, Bridge. We'll do this live again. The Maze War is cool. The one that I think is also wild which came out a few years after maze war is called it has to have war in the name so it's called future war cause because you know has yep. to be um but it's really similar graphic set where it's a 3d at, like custom ascii font graphics but the setting is in the future on an underground base after an apocalypse you run around you fight robots and aliens and mutants you have weapons like shotguns and pistols, and I think you get a rocket launcher eventually. Um, there's environmental hazards like radiation and exploding barrels, and it's multiplayer. So it's a multiplayer 3D dungeon that has all of the hallmarks of a little game known as Doom. <laughs> so it's written in like 1975, 1976. <laughs> which, which potentially... Uh, Carmack and Romero could have played at some point. I think there's an interview where they say they haven't, but someone they worked with might have. Mm, like that's the thing is it's, there's so many of these terminals and an amount of schools that the ideas are circulating out there from this kind of stuff. Mm. From, from what I just watched, it's kind of like, um, I can't remember the name of it, but the, the only thing that's similar that I've seen is, a maze where you're running away from a T-Rex. Oh yeah, on the ZX Spectrum. Mm. Oh, I can't remember the name of that game. But it's it's you've got to run away from it, and it's you don't know where it is. You don't know, you know. 
how close mm-hmm. it is. There's no real sound to it, and you're just running blindly down corridors. That's the only thing I've seen close to that. But that, just seeing that back in the seventies, that's 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 wild, guys. Yeah, it will. It's we'll have screenshots for all of these in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. just so then obviously people who are listening along can go. Yeah, I totally get what you mean. <laughs> The other thing that was big on Play-Doh that's not strictly game-related, but they had email prior to email, and they had another application that was just a forum that they had built into the system, and they had instant messaging clients. So <laughs> it's it's just like a modern internet experience, but built in the middle of the 1970s using really archaic technology. <laughs> So on top of everything else that you, all the knowledge bombs you've dropped on us, are you telling us that the 1970s is where the modern meme comes from? Yeah. There, My there's this great section in that book I was mentioning, The Friendly Orange Glow, about the with how the character set works. You could do control characters to move the cursor around. So people on forums figured out that you can make basically emoticons using that. <laughs> Wow. The modern emoticon and meme existed yeah. over 40 years ago. Yeah. So it's all see I can I can blow your mind even further, Squidge, right? There's a there's a video um that is a presentation by Douglas Engelbart from nineteen sixty eight, and it is known colloquially as the mother of all demos. Right. So nineteen sixty eight, right? He's doing in front of a live audience. Remote access, email. He's using what's called a corded keyboard, which is not a keyboard with a cord on it, but like a keyboard that you you would you, you would play it almost like a like, like a chords piano. on a key, a layer, yeah. like on a piano, yeah. to do different things. But also doing Skype like live video chat in nineteen sixty eight. And and he has a mouse and that he can use on the screen. And the screen is all rendered using hypermedia. So you have links, embedded images, lists, formatted text. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's so many years later, but Microsoft has got a lot to live up to after <laughs> after hearing that in the 60s, man. They, you know, if someone could do that in the 60s and it ran fine, and then you've got whoever it was doing a live demo and he just blue screens straight away. Oh, that's that's the famous Bill Gates Windows ninety five plug and play. The ninety five one, yeah, the plug and play. Yeah. Above not blue screen of death. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, is why. So, so that yeah. happened Windows ninety five, but in the sixties you've got a guy doing like Skype video chat. Mm-hmm. Internet and emails, everything. Collaborative internet. document editing. The, yeah. It's amazing. Where I actually <laughs> do create Discord in the sixties. What the hell? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> um, no, that it's interesting. You brought up Engelbart. I that, that's one of my favorite parts of computer history. I love these things like Plato or the demo, where it's like this is just modern technology. This is literally just a modern system that's just 50, 60 years ago. You know, no big deal. Um, a while back before everything locked down, I got the chance to... So the demo and the software for that was developed at Stanford, at Stanford's Research Institute, which is quasi-affiliated. But at the Stanford Library, they have all of Engelbart's notes on all of his research. So a while back, I need to get some, some information that's related to the podcast. And I ended up through a series of communications and a bunch of requisite forms going down to Stanford and getting to go through those notes, which was mind blowing (laughs) (laughs) just to see like, well, here's where he's writing about how he came up with the idea of maybe we should have a mouse. Yeah. Mind blowing. (laughs) crazy i'm going to put something in the chat here so uh for the people listening i'm going to send squidge a link to something right it's not related to plato i don't think and it's definitely not related to engelbart but um just some memes check out this one this is uh sword of damocles oh yeah the vr all right give me a second i'm going to turn the sound down on this so definitely from from 1966 augmented reality what 
So, you know, Google, yeah, exactly, right? So Squidge is really, he's shocked, essentially, right? Google tried to release Google Glass a number of years ago. Microsoft have the Surface something or other, or the HoloLens, sorry, that does this. But this is 1966. <laughs> it's not exactly portable, I'll say that. I'm pretty sure last time I went to uh, opticians, I wore something like that to get my eyes checked. But... Yes. um yeah, that's that. I, I mean, I was watching it, and before it gave you the view of what he was seeing, I thought, I'm pretty sure I've seen an episode of Doctor Who like this. <laughs> or there's an episode of Star Trek where they do something similar, and it just changes the view. And even just to see the augmented cube, mm-hmm. especially the year it was, that was out, that was outstanding. Yep. Nothing's really that new. Stuff's just gotten smaller and faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. That was weird. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> so, yeah. So what do you think, Squidge, right? Next time somebody says to you, hey, have you got PlayStation VR? You can go, no, but I've seen the Sword of Damocles. <laughs> the what? Let me show you. <laughs> Are you familiar with the 1960s? <laughs> I've never played a game called Space War. <laughs> loop, loop just keeps going. <laughs> But this this is what I mean, right? The, if you don't know what the limits are, and you're willing to try and push to see where to see where the limits are, you, the the world is literally your lobster, right? You can do whatever you want. Somebody gives you a budget and a computer, you can literally like when people say to me, "I can't do this with my computer." Well, okay, figure out how to do that with your computer, right? Because there is there, there's a lot of limitations, but it can't be that hard because <laughs> we have mm. plasma screens in the sixty uh, the seventies. We've got augmented reality in the sixties. We've got you know three D first person shooters in nineteen seventy three. Let's do MMOs, this. MMOs, yeah. MMOs mm-hmm. in the seventies. Exactly. Yeah. Let's just get together and so. So with all of that said, Squidge, how do you feel about that huge amount of knowledge that's just been dropped on you of all of these games that you, and, and technology you, you thought were the bleeding edge and actually aren't? <laughs> well, the thing is with me, I what we've got now is is groundbreaking, it's astounding and how oh, technology's going and mm-hmm. you know, new consoles being released and you know, all these groundbreaking technologies, but I'm a firm believer of you can't really know where you are now unless you know where you've been and where things have come from. And the more I learn, the more I'm astonished at such a, such a small amount of time, really, of how mm-hmm. things have, have come leaps and bounds. And yeah, given that nowadays you've got like programming languages and you can emulate stuff and you can get instant feedback. But the further you go back, the longer it took to get results. And certain things came about from certain people going, I know I'm connected to this network that's like for military and scientific purposes, but I'm incredibly bored. (laughs) So what can I get away with without being arrested? You know, that... To see a lot of things come from that, and especially, I mean, from what I found out earlier on today, you know, the very first computer game being have space in the title, you know, <laughs> having a radar screen with the resolution of 1024 be 1024 before the 60s, having touchscreen technology then as well, mm-hmm. you know, and turning that into a computer game essentially calling it a PDP, a personal div- data terminal or whatever early days, you know, just so you don't call it a computer, you know, one up for the um, the marketing team so your bosses don't know what you're up to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> learning where everything came from and how it developed, you get a, I get a greater, not everyone, but I get a greater sense of appreciation of, yeah, I've I've got a rough knowledge of the past 10, 20, 30 years from when it was like cartridge-based gaming coming up to modern-day iterations, which is you download stuff and you play it and what have you. But going further back, realising what they had to work with, and then one clever boffin goes, you know what, let's have like 
talking peer to peer video conferencing. You know, let's let's do all this. Have a mouse on screen. Oh yeah, by the way, this is in the sixties. You what? <laughs> <laughs> let's just see how far we can take this, right? Yeah, let's 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 have a, a boundary that isn't there and just push it anywhere. <laughs> Don't dream it, be it. That's yeah, it. what's 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 that phrase? Um, is it JFK? Some people no. see things yeah. and say why. Some some men see things as they are and say why, and I dream things that never that never were and say why not. Yeah, that's that's and pretty much sums up technology. Exactly. <laughs> it just does where yeah, it started really. and how it continued. Yeah, it it started yeah. off with dials and people punching in with cards, and you had all your things up to you've got a PC in your pocket that's touchscreen. Mm-hmm. You've got access to search engines and the entire world in your pocket. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. But just think of the, the combined engineering time that it has taken for us to get to that. Yeah. It may only be 80 years, may only be 70 years. But the man hours that have been put in. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, 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 I tend to use engineering time, but yeah, the, the person hours or whatever that has been put in. The ungodly amount of work. That's it. We are quite literally standing on the shoulders of giants yeah. so that we can play a game where we run around as orange Tic Tacs pushing each other over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or a high school murder mystery simulator. Totally exactly. worth it. Totally a J-pop <laughs> high school murder mystery so, yeah. <laughs> simulator. And, yeah, and then and then you get the, the, the people who go, hmm, I wonder if I get 150 to 200 PS3s Network them together. Will that make it into a supercomputer? And then one person goes, "Let's try it." Yeah, yeah we have government funding. We can do it. Yeah, and then you find out. Yeah, it kind of does. Let's see what we can use it for. And then one person will go, "I'm kind of bored. What can I program into this? <laughs> can we play Halo on this exactly. on a PS on a PS3? Yeah. Let's Aren't try it. Have enough. If you have enough, yeah. it's not the right system, but there's emulators. Let's see what we can do. Exactly. All you got to do is stick Unix on it, and you've got access to everything, haven't you? Yeah, there you, you Stick go. Linux on it, and it's wide open. That's it. If if Excellent. enough board computer engineers had access to enough PS3 strung together with a supercomputer, how long before they play Halo? That's the modern equivalent, That's it. I think. That's it. Not very it's long. Not, uh, yeah, not a hundred monkeys, a uh, hundred... Um, Typewriters, it's a hundred engineers and a hundred computers. What can they make? <laughs> um very, very interesting creative waste of time. To, yeah, okay. to, 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 That's accurate. To to create all sorts of stuff. One last fact that I want to drop on you, and I'm sure that Sean will be able to uh, correct me on this, um, but <laughs> the lunar lander for the first Apollo space mission that made it to the moon, the code wasn't on it to make it land. It's like the landing code was not on it because they didn't have the time to fully write and test it and send it up there. And so the final few tests were being run whilst it was on its way to the moon and then they sent the code at a rate of like four bits per minute or something stupid like that because it was radio mm-hmm. to the lunar lander, which then overwrote all of the code on the lunar lander to make it land. On one of those wireless typewriters. <laughs> those it. are too heavy, <laughs> too heavy for space. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think it was like the parameters for landing yeah. because the actual... Yeah. Here's something else wild. The... So the sure Apollo, for this. Yeah, get ready, <laughs> take a shot. The, uh, <laughs> the lunar lander and the whole Apollo, um, whatever space capsules, they used one of the first computers that used integrated circuits, which was a big deal at the time because ICs were expensive. Hmm. And specifically, the, one of the more expensive ICs was an EPROM. So a programmable memory. So even NASA couldn't afford a bunch of those. So, so check this out. 
They use this device called rope core memory, which if you can find a picture of it, it's very intense. It's basically <laughs> you get a bunch of copper wires and a bunch of little ferrite washers and you weave it together in such a way that if you run signals through it, it reads off ones and zeros depending on how it's woven around washers. So the the code for the Apollo landers was actually woven into metal fabric, essentially. A tapestry. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Space tapestry. Space tapestry. <laughs> space A space tapestry. tapestry. Yeah. <laughs> there's, that, there's that S word again. <laughs> I don't know whether I should bleep it out or not. I think I might have a bit of fun to it. <laughs> Every 10 seconds. <laughs> Can you imagine that, though? You're on the team that is that is building the all of the bits of equipment that are going to go to space. And then you go home and maybe your kids or your friends ask you, what have you been doing today then? I've been building this tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't miss a stitch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those. Do not tell the astronauts that are going up with it, what this is made out of. Cause yeah, they will a, not go up. It's a black box. You just sit it in there and you plug it in. Don't think about it. Thinking about it's dangerous. <laughs> this here is the internet. <laughs> Small <laughs> black box. This is the internet. I borrowed it. <laughs> Don't <lads>. destroy it. <laughs> this will get you home. What's in it? Don't ask. It'll just get Don't you home. Take it with you. Don't spill your drink on it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so so one thing the 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 one thing i want to ask you sean as we sort of start to wrap up a little bit is you talked a lot about um the the, the warm orange glow which is uh, the accepted mm-hmm. sort of uh, major text about uh, the plato system but what other resources and obviously you can talk about your podcasting um what other resources should folks be looking into to learn loads more about either the earlier games, the Mm -hmm. weird, wacky and wonderful world of technology that isn't new because it's just taking the pre-existing technology and making it commercially viable or just like the whole history of this whole, uh, this whole wacky story of computers. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So what are your top resources? Top resource is a podcast that's known as advent of computing. It's, the best podcast in the world. <laughs> um, more seriously, though, archive.org is the the best ultimate resource for everything in the world. It's a library that operates all online. And they have emulators. They have software. They have a lot of really well-preserved documents if you want to get primary with your sourcing. Another great text that's really accessible um, is this book, called the dream machine i don't remember the author it's somewhere over there um, but it goes through the development of networking and how early research into networking and arpanet leads eventually to personal computing and it's a really approachable kind of pop history treatment about the overarching story um those are like some good sources to dig into it. If you want to get more, a little more fun, I think fun because I research this stuff as a hobby. Um, the computer history museum is a great resource. They have, of course, a museum of old computers, but they also have archives that are chop full of all kinds of primary sourcing. And they have this great, um, series called their oral history series, which is interviews with, people who played an important role in the development of computers and that they have videos and they have transcripts. If you prefer transcripts, um, you can find that on the computer history museum's website. And it's, it's a great way to see like in their own words, what people went through to get computers to work. Yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to put uh, links to those in the show notes. Cause, um, I, I looked it up is, um, Oh, bother. I closed it now. I did have uh, the the name of the gentleman who wrote uh, Dream Machine um, because I found it, but and now I've lost it. <laughs> I'm just going to grab it off my shelf. Okay, sure. Mitchell Waldrop. Okay, cool. There it is. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, I did spot that on the UK Amazon, a physical copy of the book will set you back £70. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. You can get ePrint. Yeah, right. Maybe find out for uh, electronically or um, uh, secondhand used sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a I lot more eco-friendly. I think I found this in a pile of books. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Um, I will also say that uh, over in the UK, we have a computer history museum down at Bletchley Park, which was where all of the it's the the code breakers. I mean, it was it was during and all of his military friends breaking the naval enigma code happened down there, and a whole bunch of other code breaking activities. And they have a recreation of um, his his code breaking machine, the bomb, B O M B. And I remember when I went to go see it, I just kind of stood there, all slack jawed, like watching it ticking over it was it's a thing of beauty but the most interesting thing about that is i was talking to the engineer who one of one of the engineers who put it back together and he was like yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff that it's in it's in it but we don't know why or how it works right there are parts of this that we don't know how it works like they they've had to refabricate a whole bunch of stuff from technical drawings and like scraps of paper that they found stuffed in the walls Mm -hmm. because it was a military secret. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are people, there's no one left alive now who knows how it works. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there like a, a sheet of metal on the front with a a slither of it cut out and they put it on there and they said, we've recreated it because it's on, on like documents and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, so the, there's like a, I think on the back plate, there's a specific hole that was cut out of the version that they had, that they yeah. had to, to sort of rebuild, right? And they can't find any documentation as to why there is this maybe two inch by six inch bit that was cut out of it. And so all they've done when they've rebuilt it is they've just recreated it because they don't know why it's there. That sounds right. Yeah, right? Maybe it was for like heating up sandwiches or toast on the back <laughs> of the machine. <laughs> it, it's it's future integration for that um, augmented reality machine. That's yeah. it. That it's a, it's a Plato network. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's whether we're going to put that tape feed into the good old place. It was. That's right. That's what but, it was. Um, yeah. So the reason I brought up the computing history museum that we have in the UK is because they also have on the same site a whole bunch of um, uh, you know older computers, but also loads of video game consoles as well. So you can go in and go, oh, uh, let's have a look at a Mega Drive slash Genesis or let's have a look at a BBC Acorn or something. It's really, really useful for folks and that are in the UK. And they have the Domesday machines. Yep. There. Yep. We really do, yeah. <laughs> so many. So, so what I'm saying is uh, next year when all of this um, unfortunateness has ended, I'm going to go to the Computer History Museum in the States and just sort of stand there and watch them feed loads of guards. Ah, that's a point. I've got some um, some uh, some punch cards that I use as bookmarks. I could take the four of them that I have. Yeah, get them punched. Is there anything on, on these cards that can be useful? <laughs> just read them into the computer. See it'll, what happens. It'll just be a grumpy cat meme. You know it will be, don't you? <laughs> yeah. It should be grumpy cat. <laughs> wait these cards are from the 30s what is this what it'll be is you punch it in and it'll give you a link you follow the link and it'll rickroll you that's (laughs) yeah rickrolling invented in the 30s you hear it first yeah they just planned it you know (laughs) you just you gotta think ahead and the the rest will fall in place right (laughs) oh dear yeah, you don't want that. You don't want it as a bookmark now, do you? You're going to be rickrolled the minute you go there. That's it. Just don't look at the pattern on it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with all of that said, um, what I'd like to do, Sean, is uh, how can people um, get in contact with you, find out what you're doing, and find out more about the episodes of the podcast? What's the best places to go to find those at? Yeah, there are a few places. My Everything's on my website, adventofcomputing.com, that has links to all my episodes and Spotify, iTunes, Google, and other places you can find me and where to find my Patreon and my merch. Um, and then the other best way to get in contact with me is on Twitter. I'm at advent of comp and that's the one that I check the most. So that's easy to get in touch. 
Sure. Okay. Excellent. Like I said, with all of the stuff we've talked about, I'll make sure to put links and images and all that kind of stuff into the show notes so uh, people can sort of figure out what we were talking about. <laughs> but uh, I guess all that really uh, remains to say, Sean, is thank you ever so much for, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Time out. Yeah, it's been great it's, to talk about computing's past. <laughs> and I think it's been great to watch, or rather for people who are listening, to hear Squidge's reaction to things like plasma TVs in the 60s and, or 70s, rather. <laughs> but yeah, An eye opener. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you've gone and spent another couple of hours listening to us waffle on about video games. And thank you ever so much for that. Make sure to check the uh, link to the show notes in the, in the podcatcher that you're listening to this with, unless you're on the website, in which case you've already out the show notes. Um, if you're not aware that we have the website, head over to waffling There will be a link in the podcatcher. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, we've got uh, Facebook and Twitter at they are waffling tailors, facebook.com slash waffling tailors, twitter.com slash waffling tailors. Uh, we also have a contact page on the website. If you want to send us an email message, uh, let us know if you do send a message, because we'll likely read it out. If you want us to talk about something on the show, maybe suggest an episode topic. I don't know. Um, but yes, thank you all so much for listening. And thank you, Sean. And thank you, Squidge, for being on the show again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> See you later, folks. Aww. Bye. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Dagay. See the show notes for more details. The Waffling Tailors podcast is a proud member of the J&J Media Network. To find out more about J&J Media, head over to jayandjay.media or check the show notes for a link.